Well, obviously, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, you know where this story is headed. In fact, we read where this story is headed earlier. But as the story begins in Genesis 4, it begins not on a dark note, but on an incredibly glorious note. A note of tremendous celebration, a note in which we see hope is born. Adam and Eve, living in the wilderness, experienced something that would have caused great celebration, that event being the birth of their two sons. We can find that in verses 1 through 4a, and again, follow along with me as I read of that hope. We read, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought forth the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. We'll stop there. You can imagine the amount of hope that must have been contained in the births of both of these boys. And in this celebration, it's important to take a step back and and see it for what it is, both as a picture of God's faithfulness to Adam and Eve, as well as, I think, a picture of Adam and Eve's dependence upon God, their own faith. The faithfulness of God, I think, is obvious just in the mere fact that he's allowing Adam and Eve to conceive. We recall from last week, Adam and Eve are those parents who sinned directly against God. They had done exactly that which God had commanded them not to do. And as a result, as a punishment for their sin, they have been cast out of paradise, cast out of the garden and placed in the wilderness. Adam and Eve both deserve death. They deserved immediate death. And yet God does not give them that immediate death. In fact, he gives them quite the opposite here. He gives them more life. He fulfills part of the promise he's given them and and allowing them to conceive, allowing them to have two baby boys. It's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. And in this birth and in their naming and even, I think, in the raising of Cain and Abel, I think we also see that, that at least slight picture of Adam and Eve's dependence. Adam and Eve's own, own faith in God's ongoing kindness. We see this, first of all, in the naming of these children. For again, if you look at verse 1, we see that Eve has conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. We see in the birth of Cain, celebration on the, path, on the part of Eve. We see that she acknowledges where this son has come from. She knows that while she is the mother of life, that is her name, ultimately life cannot happen apart from the hand of God. And so she acknowledges God for that. She, I think, celebrates the faithfulness of God in that. Even beyond naming these children, we see at the end of the verses we just read that that it appears that that Cain and Abel also have been raised to have a certain level of appreciation, a certain level of knowledge of, of where all things come from, that is, where all gifts come from, for what are they doing in verses 3 and 4? They're worshiping God. They have grown up and they're at least old enough now to be proper farmers to raise livestock and in response to that which God has given them they're responding in the same way that the people of God have always been commanded to respond they are rejoicing and they are giving that which they have harvested over to their creator over to their provider while Moses does not give us any detail of the background as to why they would do this it is clear that Cain and Abel at least had an intellectual understanding of where these things came from. They understood how they were to live, and thus, for these first few verses of the story, 
we see really nothing but hope. Nothing but cause for celebration, for it seems that perhaps things are back on track. Mankind is flourishing. There are more people being born. Those sons who have been born are now developing culture. They are harvesting. They are growing livestock. They are doing exactly what God set them up to do. As a result, then, we can only assume that Adam and Eve, at this stage of the story, must be filled with a great deal of hope. If you've ever been close to anyone who's given birth to a child, I think you can associate or understand that hope, at least to a small degree. For it's the same sort of celebration we all have at the birth of our own child or at the birth of a child of a loved one. The birth of a child is always marked by hope, by anticipation, by those questions of, well, I wonder what, what they're going to be like when they grow older. I wonder what their voice will sound like. I wonder what job they will have. I wonder if they'll get married. I wonder where they will live. I wonder what God will do with this child. We experience that hope today. We can only imagine the level of hope that, that Adam and Eve themselves must have felt. But they would not have just wondered what, what Cain and Abel were going to do when they grow up, right? What were Adam and Eve hoping Cain and Abel would accomplish? Well, no doubt. Their hope was that one of these sons would be that promised seed. One of these sons would be the one to snuff out the seed of the serpent. That was ultimately the hope of humanity, and so that must have factored into the hope of Adam and Eve. They would have good reason to rejoice, good reason to celebrate. For it seemed that God was fulfilling his promise and fulfilling it quite quickly. Yet in the midst of all that hope, in the midst of all that joy, in the midst of seeing this story get back on track, we see, in verses 4 through 16, we see the story taking a tragic and yet familiar turn, don't we? For we see that while they are outside of paradise, it seems they've not yet escaped the serpent. And while they're outside that original sin, it seems that sin will continue to have its effect. For as we move on past this first point of hope being born, we enter back into this picture in which we see death as once again victorious. That victory of death is, is laid out here in verses 4 through 16. And in these verses, we see this familiar picture, a picture that is very much reminiscent of Genesis 3. Very similar language being used, similar dialogue between God and man. In the same way that we saw in Genesis 3, once again in 4, we find this familiar picture of temptation, this familiar picture of sin, and, and tragically a familiar picture of a curse that results in it all. We begin with this basic period of temptation of Cain. Follow along with me again. As once again we read verses 3 through 7. There we read this. It came about that in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, Abel, on his part, also brought from the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. As we enter back into the story, we see that Cain's temptation comes as a result of this interaction he has with God and with his brother Abel as well. And we are told that Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice before God. And 
God has regard for Abel's sacrifice, but for Cain's, he does not have any regard. He rejects it. We're not told exactly why God rejects Cain's sacrifice. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate as to what exactly caused this rejection. Was it the sacrifice that was lacking in something? Was it Cain himself? And while we cannot be quite certain as to what it is, I think there is some hint when we compare the sacrifice of Cain to that of Abel, not in the the comparison of the fact that it's fruit versus animal, but in that language it's used to describe Abel's sacrifice. Again, look at the way it describes Abel's sacrifice in verse 4. It says, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Key words there speak to that firstling, the firstborn, as well as to the fat portions. This is the same language that will then be carried on into the Mosaic Law. And as many of you already know, when, when God commands certain sacrifices to be made in that Mosaic Law, they're commanded to offer of their, their first fruits, their firstlings, the firstborn, because those were the most valuable. They cost, the one who making the sacrifice, they, they cost him something. Abel followed through on that desire. Cain, on his part, however, simply brought fruit from the ground. Now again, we're not told exactly what was behind Cain's motivation for this, but based off of his response, I think we can take a pretty good educated guess. For when his sacrifice is rejected, he immediately responds with this seething anger and disappointment. He does not respond by going and getting another sacrifice for God. He does not respond by crying out to God. He responds by looking down away from God, gazing in upon himself, and simply seething with that bitterness, frustration, anger, and no doubt envy of his brother. It would seem then that for whatever reason God rejected Cain's offering, there must have been included in that Cain's heart. It seemed very distant from God who he was worshiping, very distant from the God whom he was making the sacrifice to. God, of course, understands that, and God is always after our hearts, not just our mere obedience. And so, we're told God rejects it, and and Cain responds with anger. As Cain seethes in his anger, we come in verses 6 through 7 to this tremendous opportunity that God grants to Cain. For God could have struck Cain down. God could have driven Cain away from his presence immediately, but he doesn't. What does he do instead? He interacts with Cain. And again, in interacting with him, I think we see an echo, hear an echo from the garden. For he asks, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God, of course, understands why Cain is angry. He understands exactly where his heart is, and yet he he inquires of him so that he forces Cain to really bring these motivations out. And as he does so, God is in essence telling Cain that the choice is yours, Cain. There's no reason for you to be angry. So you can either take the path of righteousness and deal with this, or you can sit there and stew in your anger, but if you do this, Sin is crouching at the door, and it will overpower you, for its desire is to master you. The calling that God gives to Cain is an incredibly gracious one, and it's one that's repeated time and time again throughout the prophets and throughout the stories of the Old Testament. 
this calling to God's people to choose that which is right, to choose righteousness, to choose good, and if they choose good, they will live, they will experience the grace of God. You can see the sort of callings found in passages like Amos 5. Perhaps more familiar, you can hear that same sort of calling given by Joshua at the end of Joshua. Joshua 24, many of you are familiar with that story, when Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. What is Joshua saying? He's saying either you choose to serve the gods of this foreign land, and in so doing you will be destroyed, or choose to serve God, and if you choose to serve God, then you will experience his blessing. You will experience his goodness, his provision. The same thing is given to Cain, and ultimately, while those words of the prophet and while the words to Cain are not spoken directly to us, we understand that this, this internal turmoil, this process of dealing with temptation... It's the same process every single one of us goes through with every temptation to sin. The author James lays out that similar process in James chapter 1. It's another passage that's perhaps familiar to you, but I encourage you, turn to it. James 1. We see sin still takes this same route today. For in James chapter 1, we see this depiction of temptation and how it ultimately leads to sin There James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. As many of you already know, the language that James is using here is language that can be compared to fishing. Compared to the idea of Satan casting that bait out, attracting you, doing that which which he knows is alluring to you. And it's only when we take grab of it that sin takes root. We see it then ultimately result in death. Just as Adam and Eve before him, just as Cain here in Genesis 4, and just as every fallen person since, the temptation in this moment is always to blame our external circumstances. The temptation is always to blame God, to blame a spouse, to blame a friend, to blame whatever is stressing us out. And as we do that, we allow ourselves to to slowly embrace the sin within. We do so deceiving ourselves into thinking there will be no repercussions. But as God tells us here in Genesis 3, or Genesis 4 rather, sin is always crouching at the door. Always ready to pounce. In those moments of temptation, we can imagine that sin being like a a coiled rattlesnake beneath the rock that we're about to step on. And if we listen closely, we can hear that slight rattle begin to sound off. And we can choose to either ignore the sound and move forward, and thus be struck, or we can choose to wisely step back. Re-examine our ways, re-examine the path we are headed down. At this moment, Cain is given that all-important decision move forward in his anger, and in so doing, be overcome by sin or repent. Find forgiveness. Tragically, as we already know, the temptation does not end there. Rather, it ultimately does produce this sin, and a sin that is indeed very wicked. If we read of Cain's sin in verses 8 through 9, where after being given this warning, we're told, Cain spoke to his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, The Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. 
the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here we see a shocking, shocking picture of how depraved man already is in the wilderness. And we see this in the murder of Abel. And this, this murder itself is shocking, but in this murder we really see two incredible things that Cain is doing. First we see Cain complete, completely disregarding God's counsel. And God has, has directly spoken to Cain. He has told Cain, here's what's going to happen if you follow through with this. We would all like to assume that if God speaks directly to us, well, we're going to pay heed to that counsel, won't we? Which is not the truth in our sin. For God has spoken to us in his word, and we still d- deny it daily. And Cain himself denies it. He has total disregard for the counsel of God, and thus he allows that anger to continue to seethe, and he hatches a plan. Language is a bit confusing there in verse 8, but I think what it's saying is, as Cain spoke to his brother Abel, he invites him out to the field, he knows what's he go- what he's going to do, and thus as he enters into the field, he murders him. And as if that wasn't enough, when Cain is finally confronted by God and asked, where is Abel your brother? Cain's heartless response is this brief, I don't know, Am I my brother's keeper? That's shocking wickedness on display. And what makes it particularly shocking is that question he asks of God. Am I my brother's keeper? Do I have any responsibility for where Abel is God? This question would have no doubt been particularly shocking to the original audience, the Hebrew people. To that original audience, when they hear Cain ask, am I my brother's keeper? You can imagine the crowd saying, yes! My goodness, Cain, of course you're your brother's keeper. That's the whole purpose of this. We take care of each other, Cain. And they would have known this because this is a point made abundantly clear throughout the laws that God passes down to his people. You hear it in in foundational texts like Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18, we read this law. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. Time and time again, the people of Israel were were told very clearly, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are responsible for each other, Israelites. And so you are never to act in a way that harms your fellow Hebrew people. You are never to act in a way that disregards the fact that they, like everyone else, has been created in the image of God, and therefore their life is precious. It must be honored. This question, then, would have been utterly shocking and offensive to those Hebrew people. But I fear, as I read this question today, that we live in a culture where this question has gained increasing validity. For many people in our culture would hear Cain's question, this question of, am I my brother's keeper? And and they'd be tempted to say, that's a good question, Cain. I mean, you're not responsible for what he does. I'm certainly not responsible for what other people do, what other decisions people make. And so for many people, 
as utterly absurd and as utterly offensive as this question is, we live in a culture today where am I my brother's keeper seems to be an ongoing refrain repeated by so many. For we live in a world where autonomy is worshipped. Where again, individuality is seen as a gift of God. It is seen as the sign of maturity. Where we are not dependent upon anyone else. Nor are we responsible for anyone else. That's the dream for so many people. I think tragically that dream has crept into many believers' lives. And we think we can live this life independently of others. We think the way we speak of others, the way we treat others, the way we take care of others has no connection to the gospel, but that's just not true. For not only was this expectation made abundantly clear in the Old Testament, the same thing is repeated time and time again in the New, isn't it? If you were with us over the past year, you walked through the book of 1 John. And John repeatedly hits on this refrain of the necessity of taking care of our brothers and sisters. You hear this refrain in passages like 1 John 3, verses 10 through 12, where he says, By this the children of God and his children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Later on in that same letter, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, we read, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Cain was so deceived and so blind in his sin that he could ask this question as if it's a good defense. But the reality is it's far from a good defense. It is utterly wicked for God has always been clear. We are always our brother's keeper. We are always our sister's keeper. As one commentator on this passage said, while individuality is never denied, individualism in the sense of an autonomous person having privilege at the expense of another was never to be practiced in a Christian community. This is foundational. This is Christianity 101. Tragically, Cain disregarded it. He was blind to this, and in his blindness, he acted in utter violence, and he demonstrated Yet again, while the serpent does not appear in this story, his work is very clear. And the result of this work is also equally clear. For having sinned, we read Cain's curse laid out once again for us in verses 10 through 16. Follow along with me as we see those repercussions. God said, what have you done The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
Here we find language that should be very familiar to those of you who have read Genesis 3, for it's a very similar picture. For having denied his guilt, God confronts Cain and says, what have you done? In a very similar way that God speaks to Eve, what have you done? The language here is somewhat similar, but there's also new language. For here, unlike in Genesis 3, the curse is not directed specifically at the ground. Nor is the curse directed specifically at a serpent. The curse for the first time is applied directly to an image bearer. God says, you, Cain, you are cursed. You will now be driven from this land that you once cultivated. The land will no longer be cultivated by you. You will be a vagrant. You will be without a home for the rest of your life. And in such a pathetic manner, such a sad manner, what is Cain's response? For the first time, he regrets what he's done. And it's not even that. It's for the first time he regrets the consequences of what he's done. Cain shows no remorse for slaughtering his brother in cold blood, but the second punishment falls down upon him suddenly, well, that's too much, God. That's not fair. That's not just. Surely, God, this punishment is too great for me. God's response to this newfound remorse, or rather, I should say, God's response demonstrates to him that no, no, it's not too much. For he will allow him to live. And he offers Cain the sign, a sign we don't know exactly what entailed, but it was intended to be a symbol of God's protection upon Cain. And so God tells Cain, while you will bear this responsibility, you will still live, but you will live outside of this land. And it is a result then, yet again, of man's sin, that he is driven even further away from Eden, further east, further into the wilderness. Again, a picture of separation from God, but also a picture of God's faithfulness to allow man to survive. In the story of Cain's sin, we see, again, imagery that is so familiar to us from Genesis 3, but also familiar to us because, as we'll see, these same activities are just as common today. While Cain's actions are utterly abhorrent and clearly wicked, we see that in this moment, a death is sprouting. That seed is growing. Death is no longer just maintained in paradise, nor is it maintained in this new home. Death is spreading. And tragically, as the story continues, we see death and its kingdom flourish. We see that flourishment, that growth in verses 17 through 24. We'll pick it up in verse 17 and just read for these first few verses. And we'll see here that this empire that Cain builds is by many regards, pretty impressive. I mean, look what, what God allows him to do, beginning in verse 17. We read there, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after his son. Now to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad became the father of Mahushael. Mahushael became the father of Methushael. Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who is the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Here, as the descendants of Cain are outlined, we see that by many people's standards, Cain was quite successful, wasn't he? 
In the same way that God allowed Adam and Eve to conceive and bear children, so too he allows Cain to go out through the wilderness and to build this significant family. We see that as a result of the work of Cain and his sons and and daughters, that the first cities are built. We see that these same sons and daughters are given credit for the beginning of, of music of musical instruments in a similarly impressive statement. We see Tubal-Cain as the forger of implements of bronze and iron. This is metallurgy. This is, again, a practice that would have been essential in the development of culture and the development of human civilization for many generations to come. In addition to that success, you have other success stories of farming, of raising livestock. Time and time again, then, what you see in this kingdom is something that that at least at initial glance, appears to be pretty impressive. All around successful, it would appear as if Cain is accomplishing everything every ancient Near Eastern family certainly would have wanted to produce. In this picture, we of course see the grace of God at work. We see that, that even after a wicked man like Cain, that the image of God is able to produce things that, that should cause great celebration that should cause us to be in awe, that should cause us to be impressed. We certainly see the same thing today, don't we? For even the most godless people have an imagination. The most godless people can produce great works of art, make great advancements in technology, in the medical fields, whatever it is. There are people that deny the very existence of God, and yet, because they've been blessed by God with a magnificent brain, with magnificent imagination, with magnificent physical abilities, they're able to still to do things that very much mimic and reflect the calling given to them in Genesis 1 and 2. They're able to cultivate. They're able to spread. They're able to flourish. This certainly was the case in the descendant line of Cain. And if we're not careful, we would be easy to, to embrace this and say, well, this truly is a great accomplishment. But Moses, of course, does not want us to miss that which ultimately characterizes Cain's descendants. And that ultimate characterization is not found up through verse 22, but it's found specifically in the descendant of Lamech. That individual that's referenced in passing earlier in the text, in verse 19, we're told that he takes multiple wives. And to summarize the descendants of Cain, we return once again to Lamech, and we read this poem, this love song, that he offers to his wives in verses 23 through 24. And listen to this in Wives. Let us know how you would appreciate this sort of poetry from your own husband. Lamech said to his wives, Adonzilla, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. How romantic. How beautiful, isn't it? Here we have... And just these few words, such a perfect picture of everything God promised in the curse. For here we have a fallen marriage. For Lamech is the one who is first referenced as taking multiple wives, something that would become very commonplace, of course, in the ancient Near East. And even something that might be tempting to uh, presume was just natural and logical. For if you wanted to have a lot of kids, well, you need a lot of wives. Lamech appeared to be a man ahead of his times. But we understand, of course, already from Genesis 2, that was never God's intention for marriage. From the very beginning, 
In Genesis 2, verse 24, we read, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. From the beginning, marriage was intended to be one man and one woman. Tragically, it did not take any passing of law in modern America to change the definition of marriage. It was insulted and assaulted from the beginning in Genesis 4. Lamech denied its clear intentions. Not only that, as a husband, he speaks with that sinful sense of of ruling harshly over his wives. And he speaks not of his love for them, but he speaks of his own personal power, his own arrogance, his own achievements, and those achievements he believes are best summarized in him killing a man for wounding him. Lamech is a man that then represents so much of what God said would come as a result of the curse in Genesis 3. He is greedy, he is selfish, he is ruled by his own passions, he is violent, he is deaf. And again, as we said earlier to the original audience, this picture of Lamech is so obviously wicked, so obviously heinous and ugly, and yet, oh, we live in an age in which Lamech, wouldn't it be too hard to spin into a hero's tale? Lamech, born into the wrong family. Yet look what he's made for himself. Lamech, a man who embodies the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me mentality. Here is a man who takes no flack from anyone, doesn't allow to be made a fool by anyone. Here is a man that knows what he wants and he takes it. Here is a man that for many people in our society represents what true masculinity is. Passion, power, aggression. Oh, this is what so many people in our society worship. And again, tragically, there are many believers that have bought into that picture of masculinity, bought into that picture of success that revolves around the mentality that you own what's yours, you take what you want, and you make no apologies for it. We see that continuing effect, not just in Genesis, but throughout the rest of Scripture. We see humanity continue to follow in the line of Lamech, building their own civilizations outside of God, violently taking the lives of others, greedily ruling over everyone else and doing so as if it is praiseworthy. And by the time you get to Romans, you see that that folly of man is not just limited to individuals but entire societies. For it's what Paul is ultimately depicting in Romans 1, isn't it? In Romans 1, really verses 24 through the end, you see pictures of societies that have removed themselves from God and as a result, they begin to worship the created rather than the creator. And we see this society characterized by Paul in Romans 1, 28 and following. And there he says, they did ju- they, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, sl- strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Is this not simply a picture of Lamech, but a picture of our own society? Where we worship celebrities that are far, far from the picture of righteousness in Scripture. We worship power. We worship financial success. We worship sheer might. 
We worship arrogance and we call it confidence. We worship that which is impure. And even we may not be guilty of all those things ourselves, we applaud other people that are successful in doing it. And we say, good for them. Man, I wish I had the guts to do that. Well, from the beginning we understand that while that kingdom is applauded by many, and while Cain's kingdom would have undoubtedly been impressive to all those watching, that it was far from blessed from, by God. It was far from a result of his direct hand of grace being at work. No, the seed, as quickly as it grown, as it had grown already, was the seed of the serpent. And as dark as that empire must have looked, and as hopeless as things must have been, and as utterly dejecting as it must have been as for Adam and Eve to witness the descendants of their son Cain. As the story comes to a brief end in verses 25 through 26, we see yet again that's still not the only family line. We see that actually isn't the only empire in this story, for yet again we returned exactly where we started, where once again, in the midst of darkness, hope is born. For we read Adam had relations with his wife again, she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. What an unassuming, unimpressive, and yet glorious glimpse to the second seed, the second family line that God still blessed. For as Cain flourishes in the wilderness, his parents, who no doubt continue to mourn the death of their son Abel, are given another son. And yet again in this gift, we see both a picture of man's faith as well as God's faithfulness. We see the faith of Adam and Eve, yet again, at least in part, by the naming of their child Seth. For we see again, they acknowledge this is from the gracious hand of God. Here is another representative, perhaps here is the hope of the future. And to Seth, God grants another child, and we see again this faithfulness of man perhaps beginning to grow, for what do these descendants begin to do at the end? Oh, they're calling out to God. They have no city in this passage, they have no empire in this passage, but they still have their eyes set upon where glory truly rests. They still acknowledge where their hope is found. And so they respond with an acknowledgement that they need God, nothing else. We see that faithfulness of man, and of course we see that picture of God's faithfulness, for he's blessed that lineage. He allows them to grow, and at the end of it all, while there is not yet much growth, while that hope is still young, it's there. The seed might be slowly germinating underground, but there's growth, there's life. And so man's hope continues on to the next generation. And as Genesis continues to move forward, and as we read the story of Scripture, we will see that regardless of how hard the serpent works, he can never snuff out this family line. He can never kill it all, for it will persist. And eventually, it will result in the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. As we consider all of this, consider these two kingdoms, there's so many points of application we can be taken from this. As an unbeliever, my prayer is that you do not hear the story of Cain and think, hey, good for him, I think I could do that too. 
It's not be like Cain. Nor is the message of Genesis 4, just do better. Try harder. Sin is really tempting, but if you work really hard, you can avoid it. No, that's not the message of any passage in Scripture. Unbeliever, if you are outside of Christ, the picture that the Scripture gives of you is not one in which Satan is about to strike you. It's not one in which you need to beware of the serpent's bite. It's one in which you've already been bitten. The venom is already in your blood. You are a dead man walking. And what you need is not more self-discipline. What you need is a new heart. And so unbeliever, as always, I pray that you understand the ultimate application of Genesis 4 is understand that your hope is not found in yourself, it's found in Jesus Christ. And so cry out to Jesus today. Follow the example of Seth's line. Cry out to him, ask for forgiveness for your sins, place your trust in Jesus. If you need any help with that, if you have any questions, please seek me out in the lobby afterwards. Find one of our elders at the welcome desk. Talk to someone this morning. Because as you do so, you will be brought into that perfect kingdom of light. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us this morning rightly acknowledge the wickedness of Cain's line. Might we cause this story to, take, to cause us to take a step back and, and survey our own circumstances and ask ourselves, which of these kingdoms do we love more? Are we more obsessed with the power that Cain represents or, or are we more impressed with the power of Christ? Would we rather be known as a Lamech, the, the one who takes control, the, the one that's ruled by passions? Or are we satisfied simply being grafted into the line of Jesus Christ? Let us remember that it's only our hope in Jesus that keeps us alive, that keeps us moving. And as we do this then, let us move forward always with hope, knowing that our hope is not in vain. That, that seed that was promised long ago arrived, that it presented Jesus Christ that his kingdom is in fact growing, and that someday, even in the midst of all this darkness, that light again will shine forth, and we will be brought into his holy and glorious kingdom for all eternity. Let's pray that happens today, but until then, let us invite others to join us. Let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for today. Thank you for this picture of two kingdoms. Thank you for the fact that our calling does not rest upon our own self-control or self-discipline. It comes as a result and it is given to us because you have sent your son, Jesus Christ. As always, I pray for the salvation of everyone here. Might they come to you who have not yet put their faith in you. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, might we truly properly represent the kingdom of light of which we have been called to be a part of God. Might we be men and women who take seriously taking care of our brothers and sisters. Might we be men and women who take seriously the call to be gracious and kind. Might we be men and women who properly represent that greater kingdom, a kingdom that while is unimpressive in this world, is the kingdom of your true power and the one that ultimately brings you glory. We love you, God, so much. Bless our time the rest of this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.